This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and Tanya James' new novel is called Loot. It is historical fiction. It's also a little funny. It's very, very smart, and it is the one book you need to read this summer. And yes, I just said that. We cover a lot of fiction on the show, but really, Loot is the book that you need. And I'm just going to ask Tanya to set it up for us because I could, yeah, I could just put everything out there right this second because I love this book that much. Thank you so much, Miwa. It is um, such a pleasure to be here with you. So Loot is set at the turn of the 18th century. It begins in Mysore and it follows a woodcarver named Abbas. He's 17 years old and he's sort of tasked to um, create this enormous mechanical tiger for the Sultan of Mysore, Tipu Sultan. And in the process of creating this thing, he he kind of grows obsessed with this idea that that there's a lot more ahead of him in terms of becoming an artist. And so when the when the mechanical tiger is taken from India by invading British forces and taken back to England, he follows it and by basically follows it from India to France to England, not just to reclaim it, but also to kind of lay claim to his what he thinks of as his destiny as an artist. You wrote a caper flick about colonialism. That was my hope. Yeah. <laughs> you wrote a caper flick about colonialism. And <laughs> I have so much, I mean, even just thinking about this book just fills me with joy because honestly, you and I have both been around books for a really long time. And sometimes you don't get that moment of, wait, she just said that. Wait, she just did that. Wait, who are these people? I mean, the book opens <laughs> with this great line. You know, the day a boss was taken from his family, he was carving a peacock into a cabinet. And I'm just like, okay, okay, I'm in because who is this kid and what's going on? And the cast is really tight. It's very small cast. Mm -hmm. And you do some interesting stuff with structure. I don't want to lose sight of the fact that we're talking about colonialism and loss and isolation and being an outsider and all sorts of big ideas as it were but i love this kid i love his journey i love the other characters that you put around him and <laughs> there's a drunk frenchman <laughs> who you know is a refugee from paris you know obviously the revolution is happening at the same moment and he can't go home so he's you know in a place that yes he's chosen to be there but he's also a refugee and I just want to talk about where the idea came from, because you've never written historical fiction before. Yes, that is true. I've always been a little bit intimidated by historical fiction, mm -hmm. but um, I kind of feel like the subject matter chooses you. You don't really, okay. at least that's my feeling. When I came across Tipu's Tiger, the actual automaton, I couldn't help um, being completely captivated by it. I mean, just to give people a little context about yeah. that object, it's it's basically a six foot long wooden tiger that's mauling the throat of an English soldier. And Sorry. back in the day, yeah, <laughs> um, it's uh, it's kind of great. Um, back in the day, when it worked, you could turn this mechanical crank, and right. the tiger would grunt, and the soldier would groan, and then the soldier would kind of flap its arm up and down in a mm -hmm. pathetic way. And it was, I had seen, you know, British propaganda about Tipu Sultan, who was the ruler right. of Mysore, about Indian subjects in general, you know, as being kind of feeble looking and, uh, or Tipu as a kind of brutal, savage. 
but I hadn't seen that gaze turned back on the British. And it was just so uh, openly anti-colonialist and irreverent and actually kind of funny. Mm-hmm. Like, I actually think it's a funny, it has a sense of humor. Um, and so I just was obsessed with it. And I think I, I took a piece of advice that I give to my students sometimes, which is sometimes it's not about trying to figure out why you're obsessed with something. Something Sometimes you could just give your obsession to a character and that then becomes a kind of narrative fuel for story. And I have to say, I mean, the package on this book, the jacket and the title are so good. And when I saw the title, I was like, okay, okay. And then I start reading. And I mean, there's so many different meanings for loot, obviously. And there is also a card game that shows up later in the book. But the title really um, just nails it. And I'm wondering, too, if you knew that was going to be a piece of it as you were setting out. Because it is, I mean, again, you wrote a paper flick about colonialism. <laughs> <laughs> it's oceans alone. No, um, I I loved discovering that the root word loot is, uh, comes from Sanskritic languages, um, from lutna, which means to plunder. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and it was actually a word that the English language didn't have a word at that time to describe what what the East India Company was doing, the scale right. on which they were um, stealing things and money and goods. And so and so they had to take a word from from an Indian language to to kind of articulate that. I just thought it was so excellent. Those layers are so interesting. And particularly that this was a time that in which there's sort of confluence of different languages and peoples even within India, I didn't, I had no idea about like the French presence in Mysore. And so I, I almost never, I really have a hard time with titles. This was one title that I, I found it so early on and it just immediately brought everything into focus for me in a way. Like the project was such a concrete thing in my mind and, and I could, that I could put this title on it. It really, it really somehow helped me in a thematic kind of way. I'm also really glad to hear that I wasn't the only person who didn't know about the French presence in Pondicherry. I was just like, wait, what? I had, I honestly, I had no idea. So can we talk about research for a second? Because not once in this book did I feel like I was being fed, you know, my cultural vegetables. Let's put it that way. (laughs) You know, sometimes you're reading and you're like, oh, I need to know that. I understand. I was so caught up in the story and I was so caught up in the characters and I was so caught up in what was happening and the way you were telling the story that I really was kind of like, wait, I should go back and look that up. And sure enough, the French in Pondicherry. I was just like, what? Thank you. That is a relief because I, you know, there's some writers who can get lost in the research mm-hmm, for, mm-hmm. you know, years and never write. And I am the opposite. I just, right. I don't really enjoy historical research. Mm-hmm. I enjoy other kinds of research, but I, I, I really am just trying to get through it as quickly as yeah. I can. In the beginning, I was just trying to get a lay of the land to sort of ground myself and really kind of give myself the confidence and just kind of trick myself into thinking mm-hmm. that I am now a scholar of, uh, you know, Mysore in the 1790s, you know, and I right. it's ma- mainly for myself and a lot of that mm-hmm. I'm not kind of bringing into the novel. I kept running into this problem, which is that I couldn't find the information I wanted. You know, there wasn't a lot about Tipu's Tiger in, Brit- in uh, English or in Canada, which is the spoken language in Karnataka, Mysore. So I kept, there was, we know even less about the makers, like we know it was probably made by local Mysorean artisan or artisans that probably also was helped, you know, the internal mechanics was 
were, um, you know, uh, made by French, maybe a French clockmaker. I found the name Les in the margins of some text. And so I, I basically wove a character completely mm-hmm. from the ground up from that one name. And at first I was like, I don't know if this is the right way to go about historical fiction because the the people I admire so much are so meticulous about the research, like Andrea Barrett or, mm-hmm. um, you know, I don't know, Hilary Mantel. And, and this is what I was thinking of. You know, these are the people I was thinking of. And I came across this quote by Ocean Wong and he is a poet, he a novelist. He was talking about a poem he had written about the fall of Saigon. And he mm-hmm. said, I wasn't trying to write as a witness of history that I wasn't a part of. Um, rather, I was trying to build a mythology out of the history I come from. And I just thought that was a beautiful way to think about, you know, imagining history, that it is mythologizing. And some of history is also, you know, even just written history. Is, it's a story that we tell about ourselves. A lot of it is. Yeah. So that kind of gave me the permission to kind mm-hmm. of go, keep going in that direction. And the thing that I really appreciate, too, about the narrative voice is you're removed enough because also, you know, Abbas is not a character who's running around with his heart on his sleeve, right? And, you know, he falls in love sort of very quietly. (laughs) And I'm not going to spoil that for people, but the way these characters carry themselves and, you know, Dulez, the French clockmaker who sort of mentors Abbas slightly reluctantly, slightly reluctantly, is such a great character and someone I haven't necessarily met before in a book like this. You know, you've either got people who go full on, I'm now part of this world because this is where I live and this is who I am. And he's still, he's homesick for France. He's homesick for his old life. He's homesick for his lover. He's homesick for everything. And yet at the same time, he's like, well, I'm here. I should make the most of it. He's certainly not running around in, you know, Western dress or anything like that. He's walking on this edge in a way that you don't always meet in historical fiction. And I really did appreciate that. And here's a boss sort of really in his world. And again, he's pulled out of his family and he's put at the Royal court Mm -hmm. and he's kind of like, Oh, what's happening here. And watching the two of them sort of help each other muddle through. It's Mm -hmm. quite lovely. Yeah. I, I, I really, I mean, the way in which I was able to kind of get a toehold into Abbas as a character was largely through his sort of self-discovery as an artist and his mm-hmm. his discovery of desire. And mm-hmm. I I really wanted to write a character, an Indian character who was not who who is making art. In, I mean, he was like exposed to brutal situations and he's living right. at a very precarious time, but he still, you know, has is capable of wonder and self-discovery and making art. And I I also found the relationship between them, the sort of mentorship relationship mm-hmm. that develops, that I think is probably the most important relationship in his life until, you know, later when he is with Jean. There's a scene that felt very personal to me where he's thinking about what he can't say to Dulez, which is, I want what you have. Right. And you know, that desire to that desire to just you looking at the mentor and looking at their confidence, their mastery, they seem to be, to have everything at their fingertips and that desperation to have it, that felt very true to me. And later on, when Jean asks him, like, what, what made Dulez a great teacher? It's right. simply that Dulez said to him that I have faith in you. I think it's enough to send him on this, on this journey. Given what he's coming from and given what's happening 
around him. Oh, it's yeah. it's an absolute lifeline, but we get a really excellent sort of epic. I'm smiling just thinking about this book. I really, um, I have so much joy <laughs> thinking about this particular story and the way you structured it as well, because you've got time cuts, mm. you jump to location. It's very cinematic in certain ways, which we don't often get with literary historical fiction. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And again, tight cast, you know, there are people we see for as long as we need to see them. And then, I mean, it's a novel, but you can see that you have written short stories in the past. Mm. And I just want to talk about that switch. And you've written two novels prior to this. There's a story collection and now this foray into historical fiction. And all of the books are very different. And we are going to get to one of them a little bit later in the show. But can we talk about the decisions you made for the structure? of this book and keeping the narrative moving? Yeah. I mean, I, the first sort of, um, I think probably the first third to half is mainly focused on Abbas Mm -hmm. and it's at the late 1790s and it sort of ends with the siege of Serangapatam when the British East India Company basically loots and sacks Mysore. They kill Tipu Sultan. They take the tiger back to England. At that point, I knew that I wanted to get Abbas to France. I knew right. he would go after it, but like I just couldn't conceive of a realistic way in which someone of his social standing, sort of lower class, uh, he wouldn't have the money to do something like that. And it's such an extraordinary route. Um, mm-hmm. You had to go around the Cape of Good Hope, you know, which is a really dangerous um, sea, you know, passage. And I realized he would have to go go by ship, and and so he becomes an assistant carpenter on a East India Company ship. At first, I tried to write that as a close third person, like sort of, you know, what I had been writing from the before that. And I was just so bored, you know. I'm sure you're aware of this, me, but the kind of middle the Bermuda Triangle of the middle of novels, where just somehow things just get you don't under. It's just a mystery to me why. They just start sagging. And I think it's like, uh, for me, it's like, I'm just getting tired. I'm right. getting tired of the structure that I'm in. And I just need to break away and mm. do something different. And so I thought of epistolary structure. and um, But I thought, you know, Abbas wouldn't be writing a diary. He's not the, he wouldn't be, you know, fluent in writing written English. And mm-hmm. he also just wouldn't do that. But so I, I, I gave that voice to another sailor on the same ship. His name is Thomas Addison, and he's writing his memoirs uh, of his time on the ship, and he's grows very attached to Abbas. Um, and I, it just, I just thought, well, that's an interesting way to kind of look at Abbas from a distance and to start to break away from his point of view, because I start to be, I start to kind of move into Jean's point of view and um, Lady Selwyn and Rum, and said so this seemed like a an, a way to kind of move transition away from him while staying close to him in a way. It's a device that I loved, I have to say, because I didn't know how you were going to pull it off. Mm. I mean, we'd gotten through the first and I was just like, okay, somehow I know where he's going. But, you know, this is not just walk up to a, you know, airline ticket desk and buy a ticket out kind of thing. This is, is, as you said, kind of a wreck of a journey. I really appreciated Thomas's voice because he's just... He's who he is. And you can see him sort of struggling with ideas of empire mm-hmm. and ideas of race and all of these things that he doesn't actually have words for. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to figure out, and really the only world he knows is the ship. And it is kind of the perfect metaphor because, especially if you think about what the East India Company did 
throughout Asia, whether it was the subcontinent or, you know, Hong Kong or China, what have you, Shanghai famously. It's wild when you think of how all of these pieces come together and how global this part of the world is in 1790 something kind of thing. It's really, it's very much ahead of its time. And I don't think people always understand that or even remember it. Seafaring, it was kind of the Wild West kind of quality where, you know, there were privateer or pirates and, you know, it was totally legal for a French, you know, pirate ship to loot a or Mm -hmm. to kind of um, attack an English company ship. It was totally normal. This happens in the novel, but England and France were at war again. They'd learned this while they're on the ship. And so a British East India Company ship comes and basically, you know, impresses or takes a couple of of men off the off Abbas's boat and um and it was just kind of such an unstable time. I, I think it's always interesting when we can see, you know, these large historical forces coming to bear on people in this very personal, personal way. Well, and that's kind of how we get art, right? <laughs> yeah. I you know, the way you give Tipu Sultan his sort of, no, I really want this sculpture. I really want a tiger eating you know, this British person, this British soldier. I mean, the idea of how sort of colonialism and the British East India Company have been presented to us, you know, especially when it's taught in the States too. I mean, you grew up in Kentucky. I grew up in Massachusetts. Like the way we're taught this stuff, it's kind of like, and then the Brits came and and made everyone, you know, civilized. And you're like, what? I'm sorry, what? I like having the other perspective. And I like seeing a little bit of the rough and tumble. Like, why are we assuming that civilization under your yeah. terms is the thing that we're looking for. <laughs> yeah. I think we're taught about empire at the time, later in empire, when mm-hmm. British empire was really about, they were under the, they were, they were, you know, doing the same things as they were early on in, with the East India company. They were just very openly rapacious. Right. And they weren't under the guise of like, we're trying to civilize you. And we're trying to like bring you into modernity, which right. was later empire. And so I think this part of empire is really interesting. And I agree. We're not, I I was taught I never thought of American the story of America the American colonies as being at all related to the story of Indian colonization right. or African colonization right. but it's all one empire so it's sort of ridiculous to think that these things were completely independent when they they weren't and you know I remember reading Americans were very aware of the resistance that Mysore was putting up to England mm-hmm. uh, to the to the company and they were very uh, kind of worried about what the company's would do if they did the same thing to America as they were doing to India. And so, you know, that put them in, on their additional kind of more intense guard. And so they're all aware of each other and mm-hmm. how their their kind of diplomacy or lack thereof, they're all kind of very aware of each other and therefore informing the choices they make, I'm sure. Which is why when a boss rolls up into France, and you don't send him to Paris, obviously, he, he yeah. shows up sort of out and about. He's got people there. He's got people there. And I think it's really important, too, that, you know, when you're an outsider, you're not necessarily the only, like, you do look for your people. And he's looking for Dulez. And we're just going to say he's looking for Dulez. And the life that he finds in Rouen, France, is more complicated, I think, than a boss may have expected. Because what does he know of anything, right? He wants to sort of start a life there 
I think maybe he could be, you know, do some basic clockwork. He's sort of working, uh, you know, Jean sort of like allows him to work in that, mm-hmm. in her curiosity shop and um, kind of make simple repairs, but he wants more. He's still very kind of ambitious and he feels like, what is the point of all that he has left behind? He's left behind his family. Mm-hmm. He's gone through this horrible kind of uh, experience, uh, just getting, uh, getting mm-hmm. to Rouen and, well, that it has to be worth something, and right. that he sort of, he sort of then goes to a French clockmaker and asks him, like, "Can I, can you apprentice me? Because I want to make automaton." Mm-hmm. And this this French clockmaker is says basically, "If you are who you say you are, that is, if you are the one who made Tipu's tiger, then I want to see that object. I want you to bring mm-hmm. it here." And Abbas at first is completely at a loss. You know, it's this massive thing. He, he just feels like his fate is as a as an artist and as a maker of automata is kind of tied to this thing. So that's how he and Jeanne end up going to France. I mean, initially, Miwa, actually, I mm-hmm. thought the novel would be a heist novel that is entirely set at a country house. Right. I just thought that's that's exciting to me somehow. I've always wanted to write an English country house novel. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know why. You know, I just kept having to think about who would be the kind of person who would want this thing so badly. And so that's how the novel kept going back. And I'm back and back. very happy this is the book we got. Mm. I'm very, very happy because part of it, you know what the stakes are. The stakes feel higher. Mm. And you do bring us to Lady Selwyn and Rum. And Rum broke my heart in a way. That I wasn't expecting because Rum is also from India. Mm-hmm. Different cast than a boss, but he is in service to Lady Selwyn with complications, mm-hmm. which is all I'm going to say. <laughs> but he is displaced completely. And in a, there are a couple of different moments where he sort of steps out of his assigned, expected, acceptable role, and it really uh, is not good for him. And, you know, the whole time I'm sort of s- sitting there with the book in my hands going, oh, dude, dude, my guy, this is not good for you. Yeah. And he doesn't know. It. He doesn't know it. He He wants to be part of something that doesn't really want him. And it was... Maybe heartbreaking is too strong a word, but um, I felt for him. I really did. I really, and I'm glad he was there because I think we don't often get characters like him either. So can we talk about Rum for a second? Yeah, I'd love to. I I really enjoyed writing that character, actually. I wanted to make sure that the Tipu Sultan that I'm writing about isn't, I'm not idealizing him too much because he could be very brutal Right. was very brutal to his adversaries. Mm-hmm. And so Rum, his past is that his kingdom, the kingdom of Bednor, was brutally subjugated by Tipu's father, Haider mm-hmm. Ali. And so he has a very different perception of Tipu Sultan um, than Abbas or anyone, you know, anyone we've read thus far in the novel. He hates him and he right. um, is sort of traumatized by him. And so he sees himself as purely, you know, loyal only to Lady Selwyn. And he thinks of himself as her protector, basically. Right. And um, and so he's very suspicious of Abbas and Jeanne. And it was just really interesting to write a character who on the surface seems very confident and authoritative, but who's actually occup- occupying a very 
kind of precarious status because he's yeah. not quite upstairs. He's not quite downstairs. He's in the middle, which is a really difficult place to play, uh, to be in, you know, yeah. particularly in England at this point in time. Um, I think, you know, he understands that people people want to know where where you fall in, in the rank and you can't just be in between things. Um, and particularly because he's a brown man in a place of large, mostly white people, you know, it can be construed as, you know, stepping out of bounds. You know, even when we meet him where he's in a kind of a dangerous spot, more dangerous than he realizes, I think. And I have to say, the women, I realize we've been talking about the men quite a lot in this book, but the women, Jean and Lady Selwyn, you give them the latter section of the book and they develop this friendship that is just, it's so great. And I guess, okay, did I raise an eyebrow to Lady Selwyn when we first met? Yes, yes, I did. Because there's some stuff you do early in the book where I'm like, okay, here we go. And it's so great. I mean, the way you write about friendship and like the friendship between Dulez and Abbas and Lady Selwyn and Sean, it's it's really refreshing. It's really smart. It's really fun. I know I keep coming back to the fun word, but this book is a lot of fun. When did you know that that's how that relation, because you could have written that relationship in a bunch of different ways. You really could have, but this feels right. It feels true. It feels organic to the story. So when did you know that piece of the story was coming? Mm, I, I like you, kind of felt like Lady Selwyn at first. I thought of her as a kind of comic figure. Mm-hmm, She's sort mm-hmm. of... um kind of ridiculous in her um you know but you know appropriate for that time but mm-hmm. you know she's she fetishizes you know oriental art and she's a collector of it and a kind of hoarder of it she sees herself as this descendant of people who fought in the crusades she has this you know she's kind of fabulous but also narcissistic and all of this was kind of fun to write and then i thought well, what if she's a novelist? And not only what if she's a novelist, but what if she's actually a pretty good novelist? Like, you know, she's writing this novel. It's hidden in this closet in her house. Nobody has seen it. It's like this great passion in her life. And, you know, she can't share it because it would be kind of jeopardize her reputation Mm -hmm. to be discovered as a writer of romance novels. And so she allows Jeanne to read it. And I thought there was something special about the fact that, that Jeanne is the only person in her world who sees what she's capable of and who really honors that and who who kind of tells her that, you know, this book belongs alongside all your other um, books in the library. And there's something about that vulnerability that really interested me in Lady Selwyn. And I, in addition to having fun with her, I, I didn't feel like I needed to like her, but I wanted to be engaged by her in a different way. And that that she too is an artist and she too is a striver in the same way that Abbas is a striver, though they'll never really understand that about each other. We we can make that connection. She kept surprising me. Mm. All of your characters kept surprising me. And I don't often get to say that. I mean, I get to say it enough, but I don't often get to say it, especially if you read a lot. You do sort of have you know, a basis for comparison, let's call it that. Right. But everyone kept surprising me and she really um, kept me on my toes. Yeah, I really wasn't expecting that. I was sort of like, okay, here you are. Mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, I get it. And then boom, mm-hmm. <laughs> it was really, it was wild. And I want to go back to your last book, The Tusk That Did the Damage, mm-hmm. because it is so different mm-hmm. from Loot 
and it has three storylines. And one of those storylines belongs to an elephant. And I know we talked earlier in the show about research not really being your thing and how you like to sit in that space, you know, between sort of authority and just the narrative, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's it's a strange space to sit in. And that was, what, 15, 2015? Tusk yeah, that's what came okay. out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is this the longest between books for you? Yes. Okay. It definitely is. Yeah. How do we go from Tusk to Loot? Well, I mean, I had a, I had quite a few um, <laughs> cataclysmic events in my life after Tusk. I mean, actually, Tusk came out right after my first son was born, and then I also had taken a my first sort of uh, tenure track job, so I was teaching full time, mm-hmm. and you know, I drafted two different novels after that. I was just, I think I felt very kind of desperate to re- to remember myself as a writer okay. during that period of time. And I was just kind of trying to push these things into being and they just weren't speaking back to me. You know, I don't know. I think I was at a point in my life where I just was like, I had a different relationship to time in that I, I was like, I'm for, I'm, you know, uh, approaching my forties and I, I'm thinking about like, where do I want to spend my time? Like, does the world really need another whatever novel that I was working on? You know, right, I, right, I, right. I just felt like I was more aware of what other people, these wonderful books I was reading. And I was like, what, what is worthy of the attention? I wrote a couple chapters of this novel mm-hmm. and I never do this. I, I never send anything to my agent that I don't ever send her things that aren't a full draft. Right. And that I'm not pretty confident as, you know, solid, you know, I want feedback, but I, I feel somewhat okay with it. But I sent her a couple of chap- chapters and I was like, what do you think? Should I keep going? And she did, she, you know, she was like, these are great, you know, like keep going. And it still amazes me that that was enough to kind of keep me going for several years until I, until I did finish. But it, again, it has me thinking about that mentorship relationship where mm-hmm. sometimes like you just need the words of confidence you know um but yeah this was the one thing that was at that time like really speaking back to me when did you know you had the voice because it's a really it's a very specific voice it's very charming but it is there's a reserve there that you kind of need if you're gonna do what you're doing here i mean i i felt like i had tripped onto something when there's a paragraph which actually used to be the opening paragraph of the mm-hmm. novel and now it's not and i think that's for the best but it, the first sentence used to be it is said that in sri Patna, the spies outnumber the people that felt like to me like okay now i have the authority to speak to to be able to go close to characters uh, points of view but also to be able to speak over the character sometimes mm-hmm. and directly address the reader and that yep. to me was what made the was what made the history kind of fun because sometimes i think historical texts have this kind of faux neutral feel yeah, yeah. and i yeah. i've just felt like i wanted to also transmit some of the experience of my going through the research and discovering absurd things you know yeah. and moments that i thought were funny or stranger and raging and so at times i i feel like that's just me having fun with history and kind of reminding you that I'm telling you my version of this story and um, I'm not I'm not an objective party here. That not being objective, I mean, that point of view, right? Like a novel needs a point of view to exist. Mm-hmm. I mean, occasionally mm-hmm. I am queen of the obvious. This would be one of those moments. But <laughs> the way the story unfolds though and the beats that you give it and the way you spread it out is so smart because I didn't know if this was suddenly going to be 
Like, are we looking at a month? Are we looking at a year? Are we, I mean, you're so, time is really stretchy for you. And yet the narrative stays really taut. And it's because of these time breaks that you use mm-hmm. and whatnot. And it's, it's a great device. It is a really, really great device. Because I think the temptation would have been to write a little longer than you do. Mm-hmm. Um, which is also part of the fun of this book. It's very short, given the ground and the time that you cover. And I'm wondering how much of the book got cut mm. because of that and how much the voice changed. I mean, you started as a film student, then got an MFA in writing. And you've said this in other interviews, that editing was really the thing that you were doing with film. And I can't help but think that carries over especially when I get a book that's this tightly written and this sort of propulsive. Yeah. Yeah. I, I am, I am sort of ruthless. I think I'm I'm not precious about Mm -hmm. cutting, but I don't, I'm not one of those people who has like a, you know, 400 or 500 page draft and just has to work backwards. I, I really am. I really, I think I do a lot of editing as I go (laughs) And I, I mean, to your point about the shorts that, you know, I, I don't know if it's because I was a short story writer or, or I am, um, but I do feel like for me, when I'm building the novel, I am trying to think in discrete bites. Like I'm thinking about the arc of, you know, what's that first phase of Mysore? Like, what is that journey? And then I, and I, I just going to cut out and cut back into 1789. And, and I, you know, velocity, I think means I, I, that is something that I do care a lot about and that you know not that the plot has to move so fast but that the you know perhaps it's at about the speed at which you're learning things or mm-hmm. something is being revealed to you so i i think about that question of urgency um and then i think what i didn't really end up cutting that much but you know in kind of talking to my editor she had really great um notes particularly about the last third and the sort of you know, I have this tendency to want to kind of shoot into the mind of a marginal character. And I think that that's kind of a pleasure for me. That's one of those surprises that that I, I really enjoy. But, you know, that perhaps works better in earlier parts of the novel than at the end when when momentum is sort of picking up and you're really, I think, kind of reading for certain questions. And so that was where I was trying to kind of um, narrow the focus a bit more. And that's where more of the cutting happened. It's really satisfying. <laughs> Thank you. It's really, I, I can't stop smiling thinking about loot. I really can't. Literary influences, though, you have been doing this for a while. You teach creative writing in DC mm-hmm. as well. So, yeah. who were some of the writers who've made you Tanya James? Ooh, um, well, I think I was thinking about Salman Rushdie a lot when I read, I was writing mm-hmm. this novel because I was thinking about voice and how with his novels, you just always get a sense that you're in the room with him, that he's speaking to you, you know, that there's someone speaking to me. And I find that really magical, um, you know, like in the same way that, you know, Roald Dahl will do, you know, will uh, kind of have an irreverence about the author audience relationship. If I go further back, really like the authors that just obsessed me were, um, you know, the French guys, Victor Hugo and um, Dumas. I mean, I was, I had a hard crush on the Count of Monte Cristo. And then later I thought about Beloved a lot too, as I was writing this novel, because that's a historical novel where she just, I mean, she's just incredible. Like the way in which she takes a kind of speculative 
angle on history. And I really wanted to do that in this novel. It just didn't work. That was a really pivotal novel for me when I read it. It was the first time I kind of paid attention to sentences, too. I'd never read anything mm-hmm. where I was like really like uh, amazed um, in that way. Yeah, I think those are those are some of the big ones for me. You know, I think Beloved, too, is one of those books that when you read it for the first time and it makes your head explode because it will. I mean, there, I, I don't know a single person who hasn't had their brain broken open by that book, at least who's read it. But I think, too, for a lot of readers, that was the first time they had their own ideas of what makes up a narrative. I mean, it's a ghost story in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. right? Like it's mm-hmm. turning slave narratives upside down for some people. I mean, especially and talk about challenging history, right? Like I think for a lot of readers, because that came out what, 86, 87? That like sounds we were small. right. Yeah. Yeah. And I just remember the adults around me sort of talking about that book and mm. and some of them didn't know what to make of it. Yeah. And I love the idea that we can do that and be that upfront with what literature can do. I mean, there's this idea that you're either being told a story or you get pretty sentences. It's like, why not both? Yeah. I would like yeah. both, please. Like, why do I have to settle for one over the other? And I think that's something that you do with loot where it's like, I get beautiful sentences and stuff happens and a lot of stuff happens. And I've got this cast of characters that is not totally unwieldy, but everyone has a role, right? This book is very satisfying. <laughs> It's really satisfying. Oh, gosh. Thank you. I think one of the things that was so surprising about Loot, too, was when I realized exactly what you were doing and how you were doing it and what you were talking about. You know, how do we continue these conversations, right, about ownership and boundaries, whether they're national or, you know, human or what have you? Like, I think it's easy for people to say, well, it's historical. Why do I need to care, right? And yet you see a lot of what plays out in Loot, including the caper stuff, right? Like, let's go super simple. Like, the Elgin marbles are still in Britain. The Greeks would like them back. <laughs> how do we keep these conversations going? How do we How do we keep people still thinking about this stuff? That is a great question. I heard something the other day that was sort of astonishing, that the, that the Powys Castle in Scotland has more plundered Indian art than all the museums of India, Pakistan, and Afghanistan combined. I mean, it's which is kind of amazing. And every few days, I, I'm, uh, you know, obviously paying attention to this more mm-hmm. than, you know, your average person, but I am ve- I noticed that every few days there's some new uh, story about um, perhaps like a couple days ago is the Cambodian officials who had gone to the Met and actually yeah. gone to the Manhattan DA's office and they are arguing for, you know, the return mm-hmm. of certain objects. And the DA's office is actually seizing objects from the mm-hmm. Met to return to Egypt or Turkey. And it's, you know, if we can agree that looting and plunder is against international law, that is, it's a war crime, right. then certainly we have to reckon with more than just agreeing on that. We agreed on that in 1899. So now what do we do? And certain museums are more willing to kind of move on mm-hmm. this discussion. Mm-hmm. The British Museum is really not. and mm-hmm. You know, the chair of the British Museum last year said something like, don't expect us to be passive about dismantling our collections. And so I, you know, I think I'm following these things with interest. I think in in fiction, I'm looking for ways in which we can reclaim stories, if not things, and the ways in which we can think about the people, those invisible hands that were on those objects 
um, and the ways in which, you know, these objects have context, changing context, you Mm -hmm. know, Um, placards might describe things in a kind of bloodless way, but I'm looking for kind of bolder confrontations with history, I think. And also language changes, right? Like this is this is a thing we know empirically. Language changes from era to era to era. Language change. Like you know when you're listening to something and you're like, oh wow, I yeah, okay. So the idea that we can't re-examine our relationship with objets, as it were, right? Like I understand that not everyone can travel significant distances to see something. I I absolutely understand that. But the unwillingness to even have the conversation. Right. right. Or like the idea that obviously the Nazis stole quite a lot of art yeah. from Jewish Europeans. I like it, it's we have to have these conversations. I mean, if art represents who we are as people, right, and as communities and as cultures, we have to have these conversations. And I love the idea that you've done something in loot. And you're going to be able to reach people who might not have ever really thought about this stuff. Obviously, I think about this stuff quite a lot. <laughs> which is partially my glee with this book. It's like, look, look at how we can talk about these things and really not necessarily put it in a box, right? Like, I mean, the idea that the sculpture is six feet long mm-hmm. and it has like an organ bellows in it um, and it makes noise and all of these things. I'm just like, wait, we're talking about robotics in the yes. 18th century. I mean, yes. but that's what it is. Yeah. It's like this, this, piece of technology that just shows up in the world and all of these people are just wild about it but the technology shows up because the tipu says i want this i have a purpose you will make this for me because you have no choice (laughs) let's face it it was it was not a request (laughs) that's true that's really true it was not a request and here we are you know, that's why books are exciting. I mean, that's why literature is exciting, right? You can start all of these moments and bring them into the present day. I do think that historical fiction, even while I find it intimidating as a writer, even mm-hmm. after having written a novel yeah. of historical fiction, I, I do love to read it because of the way it's showing us how we are shaped by things that happened 200 years, 500 years ago. I mean, these kind of, I think, you know, we're very oftentimes, I'm very often focused on um, the present moment and I forget even the current events of a year before, you know, um, my memory and maybe our collective memory is very limited, but looking at ourselves in context of this larger story is really fascinating and um, surprising. Not one of us is wholly cut from a single piece of cloth, right? Like yeah. we are all shaped by the world whether we know it or not we're all shaped by the world and i just i cannot wait for other readers to get their hands on loop i really am so looking forward to this book being out in the world tanya james thank you so much loot is out now thank you mila I'm Jenna Siri, a bookseller and the associate producer of Poured Over. And today I am joined by Julia Fine. You may remember What Should Be Wild or The Upstairs House. But now she has her third novel, this incredible book, Madalena and the Dark. It will lure you in from page one. The characters will grab you by the throat and not let go until the very last page. 
I can't wait to talk about this book. Julia, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. All right. So this book, I don't even know where to begin to describe some parts of it because it is gorgeous and luscious and vivid and every piece of it is just going to fly for our readers. So I'd love to start with just having you describe the book for us. Yeah. So uh, Madalena and the Dark is about two teenage girls who meet in uh, early 18th century Venice at a music school that is also a church institution where Antonio Vivaldi, the actual Antonio Vivaldi, the composer, uh, taught violin and wrote music for one of the only all-female orchestras in Europe at the time. Um, And so these two girls, uh, Madalena and Luisa, meet there and fall into a very intense friendship and strike up a bargain with a creature in the Venetian canals that will uh, help them to sort of achieve what they want, whether it be a prestigious marriage or first chair in the orchestra. Um, And as they continue to get in deeper with this lagoon creature, uh, they realize that they have sort of overplayed their hands um, and things sort of spiral from there, I would say. But yeah, it's about partially it is uh, historical fiction about this actual school music conservatory come orphanage uh, that existed in Venice and that Vivaldi wrote all of these wonderful pieces for and sort of the women who were behind the scenes, uh, and then also a sort of Little Mermaid-esque fairy tale about how these girls get out and what they do. And this book could not exist without these two girls, Madalena and Luisa. You immediately will have so many thoughts about them. I think I go back and forth through the book about 15 times with each of them about if I like them, if I trust them, <laughs> you just want to like take them and be like, what are you doing? But also help. And so I would just love to talk to you a little bit about these girls because they are so deep and you really understand as much as you can about why they're doing the things they're doing. And even if you don't agree with why they're doing what they're doing, there's so much to sort of unpack with, with each of them. I would love to know whose voice came first, Madalena or Luisa, or did Um, they come at the same time? They sort of came together, I would say, from afar. Like I sort of, I had this idea, um, a lot of the book is, you know, these are young women in a really intense, competitive, cloistered environment. And I sort of thought like, what better place to set a novel than this like church music school where they're all competing for you know, favor and to be like, they're in an orchestra. So of course, you know, you, you are a member of the team and you contribute what you contribute, but like, you're also a teenage girl. So don't you want to be the top dog in the way that, you know, I think many teenage girls do. Um, So that came to me first. And I was thinking a lot about just like jealousy in friendships and in art and um, sort of that possessive nature of friendship when you're young, like this idea that, you know, this is, we're friends, but we're best friends, you know, that kind of idea and what that would look like in this particular environment. And so in that vein, I sort of knew that I wanted to have one who, you know, had a stronger, superficially had a stronger will and was like the domineering one and one who seemed a little more passive. And I wanted those roles sort of to flip back and forth 
throughout the book, Madalena was a very easy character to write because she's very open with herself, I think. Um, Like she sort of knows, yeah, this is what I want. This is what I'm doing. Even when I don't really like myself, like I still am aware of it. And Louisa is a little bit more complicated in that I don't think she necessarily understands herself in quite the same way. Like I'm actually quite certain she, you know, she's like, what are these feelings I'm having? Oh, I don't know. Maybe they're this. And she's just totally wrong. She was fun to write, but it was also just a lot harder because obviously somebody who like knows their own mind and is just so singular is easy. And I needed the challenge then was making Louisa, who is quieter and who is more opaque to me, making her as compelling and interesting as Madalena. Um, Because Madalena sort of came off the page very much like, okay, I know who this is. Um, And it took a little longer for Louisa and it took sort of more playing around and trying to figure her out. And the stakes are so different for these two girls. I mean, Madalena's coming to the orphanage, the school, whatever you may Mm want to call it, um, from a noble family. And so she has a set of expectations on her that create her stakes. And Louisa is an orphan and she has been at this school for the entirety of her life and her stakes rest upon her success there. And to watch that sort of play back and forth um, for these different stakes and these different outcomes that they're just expecting for their lives was so interesting and such a, a dichotomy that pushes back and forth between these two. I was wondering as you were writing it, uh, what you were thinking there on this interplay between the two of them and their sort of stakes and their expectations for what comes next. Mm -hmm. Well, I I really wanted, um, I think that, you know, again, in going with this theme of sort of, is it possible to both like have what you want and for your friend to also have what they want when you're like this age in this particular place? Like, I, I just think that specifically like teenage, young teenage girlhood, because they're 15, newly 15. So they're just, they're babies. And I think it's so, it's so hard to balance sort of this idea of like you getting what you want with your friend also getting what they want. And like, what do you do when those things diverge? And what do you choose? And so I knew that I wanted over the course of the story for like sort of as Louisa's star rises, Madalena's falls and vice versa, the ways in which they could make themselves happy and sort of achieve their goals often necessarily sort of contradict what their friend wanted. And so I wanted to look at sort of how that brushed up against sort of the relationship. Like, what do you do when, you know, your most intimate relationship wants this, but your sort of career path slash life or even, you know, like survival in this pretty unwelcoming sort of world for young women, you know, when they contradict each other, like, what are they, what are these girls going to do? And how are they going to get around it? I was always really, really aware of that and wanted them to trade off um, and wanted sort of by the end, like those decisions to be really high stakes, both for their futures and also for the state of their relationship. Not only are they each other's maybe closest friend, And maybe more than friends if we're, (laughs) you know, expanding on some themes. Mm -hmm. But they're maybe each other's first friends. Mm -hmm. I mean, coming from Madalena's childhood sort of sequestered away with her older brothers and sort of the dynamics she has there that are very tumultuous. And though there are, you know, good times and bad times there. (laughs) Louisa, who seems very much separate from the other girls uh, in the orchestra in many ways, and whether that's something she chooses for herself or of her sort of circumstances and goals. But that like pressure cooker of not only are they, you know, so close, but 
the only female friendship that these two really have ever known is each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, again, like, they're just very, they're both very naive. I mean, Louisa, like I said, is very obviously naive in sort of the ways that you would expect, but Madalena, in sort of thinking that she knows what's going on, is also very naive. Um, and I think, again, like, going back to the idea of just that particular age, I think for everyone, and then particularly for just, like, the way that girls are socialized both back in Baroque Venice and still today, I think just makes that um, walking that line really tricky in terms of like, what is a friend and can I trust my friend? Um, So I was definitely interested in that question and that balance. And I want to come back to talking about these characters because I think there's so much to unpack there, but mm-hmm. we've been kind of talking around it. So I'd love to sort of talk <laughs> a little bit about like research uh-huh. that you did to sort of set up this very distinct world that I don't think, I mean, I don't know a ton of books set in this era, era of Venice. Mm-hmm. And so um, a lot of the the sort of politics were very interesting and they're very distinct to like this time period and in this place. They totally are. Um, it So like Venice, it's funny because I initially chose that time period because Vivaldi was sort of the cell. And it's like, oh, here we go. Here's a way mm-hmm. into the book. The more that I read, it was sort of Venice was at the end of its sort of peak pow- like power as empire, like sort of throughout the Renaissance, um, Venice, you know, had the most advanced naval technology and they were one of the only trade routes and they had sort of a system of government. Um, They were a republic and they were very good at, you know, taking care of poorer people. And it was just a very, I mean, obviously was it perfect with many caveats, um, but they had done quite well for themselves and they had a lot of money and they had a lot of influence and power. um, And they were sort of just coming down from this peak right around this time period. And it seemed like a really interesting place where like, if people in positions of power had made different decisions, maybe we would still have a Republic of Venice today and it wouldn't even be part of Italy. Um, but what ended up happening is they were making decisions that sort of veered them in totally the opposite direction. So by the end of the 18th century, like Napoleon came in and conquered them and then they were Austrian and it was just a very, like, it was just vastly different. And you sort of think about, I was thinking about how these girls, so they're like in their teens in the beginning of the century. So they probably would not be there when all of this happened. But when I think about, you know, like my own children and what future I'm leaving them sort of politically and environmentally. And it just had me really thinking about how these decisions, these small decisions that people make sort of pile up on top of one another and sort of turn very slowly, start turning the ship. And so in Venice at this particular time, you know, I have a character in there, Niccolo, who's Madalena's older brother, who sort of sees, sees not exactly where this is going, but is, you know, like, hmm, we might be headed in this direction. Um, and then everyone else who is much more sort of like carousing and carnival and partying. And um, I thought that was a really interesting, I don't know, I just saw a lot of parallels between sort of what I what I see in our own sort of contemporary politics in certain ways. And there, particularly with like Madalena comes from a noble family and sort of this idea of letting the nobility continue on as they are and, you know, become even more profligate while perhaps the rest of the Republic suffers um, or is not reaping those benefits. And then, you know, what does that look like? You know, how does that play out? And 
So this particular moment really is sort of, it's like the beginning of the end for the Venetian Republic. Um, so it was such an interesting point to give these characters almost like the option to do things differently um, and then watch them sort of make their decisions, knowing what the future is going to be like. And it's such a an important thing to, I think, be told through the eyes of teen girls, because mm-hmm. I think so often that's such a overlooked demographic in history and to have sort of these two foils because you have they're in such different upbringings and such different existences that they really serve as audience surrogates for each other because there's so much explaining that has to happen for them to understand each other's worlds yeah yeah. it it allows an option for such a deeper understanding of each part without having to feel like it was over explained or, you know, too much exposition between these two girls, you really do get a really comprehensive sense of Venice well, at this thank point. Thank you. Yeah. That's, I think that's for me was the hardest part of this particular book was how do you introduce this world without spending, you know, like 50 pages be like, well, this is what Venice was like, and this is the institution. And here's, you know, the way that like the, the rules for the nobility too were just like, so so weird. So like the oldest son didn't get married. The youngest son got married, even though everywhere else in the world. So like our, as you know, contemporary readers, there were a lot of things too, where I was like, how do I seed this so that these decisions make sense and this world makes sense? Um, So I'm really pleased to hear you say you think it's working. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, there's so much, I've been reading a lot of historical fiction recently. So my brain has been kind of in this like world building sense where Mm -hmm. you, even if though it's our world, there's still so much that has to be set up and created in order to really make it understandable and relatable to feel Mm -hmm. real. There are so many things where I'm like, well, I have to Google that just because I just don't know what that word is. And I love stuff like that in a book. I want to be able to do my own Google deep dive rabbit hole searches. Uh And I got that with like the masks in this book. It's like a mask that you have to hold with your mouth so you can't talk like that. All of that. I really... I fell into some deep dive rabbit holes. Oh, I'm this. glad. I would hope that it, I always too, I'm like, I really hope I'm reflecting this accurately. So there was a point too, where Vivaldi like comes and goes from the book. He's not, he's actually for, for all that I'm using him sort of as an entry point, he's not a very major figure in this book, but I was very careful of like, okay, so in May of 1717, what city was he in? Like, is someone going to look it up and be like, oh, actually throw this all away because he was in so-and-so. So I'm glad, though, that you, like, my sort of fears were realized when you were researching. I mean, there's also a certain degree of trust. Like, you know, I yeah. trust when you go into a book that you, even if maybe something isn't 100% historically accurate in the world of this book, mm-hmm. that's what it's going to be. I love hearing all those little details behind of, like, I felt like I needed to know all these things. I've heard that oh my so gosh, much. Yeah. Authors about <laughs> historical fiction of like, I felt like I needed to know everything, even if it didn't make it in the book. I mean, so much of the book, it's funny too, because this is a book that has like magical elements, but I was so, mm-hmm. I still was very careful to be sure that like the masks were correct and the clothing was correct. And like, you know, this is what this thing was called. Um, I think my Italian is not, you know, I'm sure there are places where someone who speaks Italian would be like, "Uh -uh." but I try really hard. So, and Venice in particular too, has this whole unique set of almost everything because there are no other cities that are built on canals. Like Mm -hmm. they literally stuck poles into the ground and then built the buildings on top of the poles. And so the vocabulary there, both in Italian and English 
is so unique that when describing like the lagoons or describing the canals, like you just have to be very specific in a way that required a lot of research. I mean, and it really works. The world is so lush and tactile. I really felt I've only been to Venice once and it was obviously in contemporary times, but mm-hmm. there were so many moments where I was like, I, I can feel it. I can because so okay. much of Venice still feels like this. I know. This it's crazy old timey city with these water taxis and the gondolas on the like it still feels like so much of this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is the perfect place to write historical fiction because it's looked the same forever and there's just like no easy logistically easy way mm-hmm. to change it. So it's not like if you're writing about like in my previous book I was writing about 1940s New York and you can go to the spot and think like oh this is where this person lived, but it's like a forever 21 a now. That, yeah. yeah. <laughs> But in Venice, like maybe it's a CVS, but at least on the outside, it looks the same. Yes, but it's it's an old-timey CVS. It's an old-timey, yeah. There's something so magical, I think, about Venice, which I think gets a bad rap because of tourism. And so before I went... A lot of people warned me that like, oh, it's not going to feel like you want it to feel. But I I don't know. I went off season. I thought it was great. (laughs) And I think you can make it feel like however you want. I mean, we bring to it so much. And I think... That's the same in when you read a, a book set in a place that is foreign and in a place that you're not from or have maybe never been. You bring your own sort of expectations to it as well. Absolutely. Branching off of sort of Venice in this time. Something I found really interesting is that there isn't a lot of option for women at this time. Um, even among these sort of different political structures than we're used to seeing. One thing that always seems to pervade history is the lack of options for women, particularly young women, to decide their own futures. Having read so much historical fiction recently, it just is something that like comes up again and again. How do young women take control of their own existences and their own futures. And obviously, Madeleine and Louisa take some interesting steps <laughs> to sort of ensure their mm. futures. But how how did it feel to sort of write around these themes of what it meant to be a young woman in 1700s I mean, Venice? It's pretty depressing because you look at it and you think, oh, but I shouldn't with again, like, you know, it's not quite as bad in the same ways today, but you see so many parallels. Um, mm-hmm. and there are so many ways that we just have not progressed or have progressed and then took steps backwards as a society. And it is amazing too how pervasive just across almost all cultures all around the world <laughs> that it's always sort of like this. Yeah, it was really interesting. And in Venice in particular, in this time period, they were so worried about sort of losing the bloodline of the noble families and not even necessarily the bloodline. Look, mostly, let's be real, like the money. Um, They didn't want to sort of dilute it so that instead of having like one really rich family, they had five or six semi-rich families. And so they just nobody, nobody got married. And there were all of these girls. And what were you supposed to do with them? And they sent them to nunneries, you know, and they were like, nice nice nunneries where they could, you know, had have their own room and people could visit them. But you still have just been sent to a nunnery, which is not especially appealing, I think, for a lot of people. Um, and yeah. so, it, yeah, it just felt like the stakes were super high in terms of like, if you want to live a life where you have any freedoms at all, you know, you have to navigate so carefully and 
make sure you're making the right choices. But also, you're a 15-year-old girl, so of course you're not making the right choices. <laughs> uh, so that was a really interesting place to be, to both like see how limited they were and how clear the path was if only they were to do the things they needed to do. And then also just to think realistically about their people, you know, so of course there are going to be other things that sort of pull at their attention and other needs and wants that they prioritize. And it also is like, it's not for Louisa, especially who sort of has a different path. Like Madalena is not necessarily talented enough to sort of rise to the top of this orchestra but Louisa could if she if that's what she chooses and so to look at like you know do you choose being like the top dog in the gilded cage or do you try to get out of it but you don't know what it's like outside of that so there were a lot of really interesting really difficult decisions that they had to make and that makes it a lot of fun as a writer to sort of be playing in this really high stakes world with very specific people making very specific choices. So it was really a pleasure to play with. It's like if your two options are you better find someone to marry who hopefully isn't terrible or you have to be the best at the violin. I'm like, oh, well, (laughs) I don't know what my choices are there. Is that what's option three? Um, And that's the convent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, I talked to um, my editor a lot. We talked a lot about too, sort of how this is also a book about like, art, but one of the rules uh, at the Pietà, like this is a historically accurate rule, was that if uh, the girls there got married and they left, they weren't allowed to perform, like they couldn't play the instrument, which um, seems really sad because they'd been raised since childhood, like they started these girls on these instruments at six years old, and for the ones who were primarily musicians, that was their entire lives, and so then you get married and You could play at home, but you could never perform and you couldn't play with an orchestra. And it's sort of that whole part of yourself is cut out. Um, And so the choice then isn't, you know, like it's it's so much more drastic than just like, am I going to leave my home? It's am I going to leave my home? And also, and this is where like it felt very Little Mermaid to me, like, oh, okay, I'm going to give up this whole thing in exchange for this. Who knows what it's going to be like, but here I go. Um, I mean, especially for these two 15-year-old girls, how can you mm-hmm. know what you'll want in one year, let alone yeah. five years, let alone 10 years, let alone the rest of your life? Mm-hmm. Especially for Madalena, who thinks she knows every yeah. rule of every game, which I think is very true for most teen girls, that mm-hmm. you think you've got mm-hmm. it all figured out at, <laughs> at, at any moment. Yeah. Um, you know, she makes her choices and maybe has what she thinks is more information. But I think Louisa, you know, so much of that just feels like she is on a journey that she maybe isn't in control of the ship anymore. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, it is. She's very, even when she's the one making the decisions, she's still not really the one making the decisions. <laughs> yeah. And I think so much of this comes into, I was thinking so much when I was reading about where ambition meets obsession meets some third thing that drives you to make a Faustian bargain with a entity in the water (laughs) and how corrosive it ends up being for these girls, for their relationships, not only just between each other, but between their, you know, between Madalena and her brothers, between the other girls at the Pieta, Mm -hmm. between sort of every juncture, this idea of obsession 
that permeates everything, especially when you are involved in the arts and you have this, this pressurized competition between you, but then also your whole world is pressurized because if you don't make all these right choices and if you don't understand, you know, how you can make the next steps in your life, where do you end up? Mm-hmm. And I would love to bring in sort of this, I, this otherworldly, this supernatural, this sort of element. I mean, you often in your books have these supernatural elements that sort of play right alongside some more grounded in reality pieces. So how did this sort of entity in the water come to be? Yeah. So this one, I think, um, in looking at how limited the lives of these women actually were, when I sat down to write, I knew that I needed something that would let them outside of sort of the very strict boundaries. Because when you think about like their lives are very constrained, but in this book, sort of they have a sort of magical means of escape. If I were to write it just like straight, I thought, you know, like I, there's no way that I'm going to write this book entirely in this school when 18th century Venice is sort of all around them, but they can't access it. And so a lot of it was thinking like, all right, how do I get them? Um, like just like logistically, how do I get them outside the walls of the hospitale? But also this idea, I think, of compromise and sacrifice and sort of the choices that you make where you're not quite sure what it is you've given away until much later and you look and you're like, oh, oh no. And so I was thinking about that a lot. And again, like The Little Mermaid was a huge influence here. Um, this idea that, well, you want both of these things. And in order to get one, you have to give up the other. What does that really mean? And having sort of a canal creature worked so beautifully. And I also, I think it was fairly early on in my research, I was reading just about the various like ceremonies and festivals in Venice. And one of them is uh, La Festa della Senza, which is uh, Ascension Day. And the Doge would every year row out to sort of the place where the canal or sorry, the canal, the lagoons met the Adriatic Sea. And he would drop a ring into the water in like a marriage ceremony between Venice and like the the city of Venice. And I guess the like physical, the physicality of Venice, the water. And they did this every year for hundreds of years. And they said, like, if they're like pledging themselves to the water and I thought like, oh, well, naturally, like something's down there. What are they, what are they pledging? (laughs) You know? And so that it, it was a really easy segue then to you know, how to look at, you know, what you offer up to get what you want with a real world inspiration. Um, and who's to say there isn't something down there that has, you know, been keeping Venice above water for the past however many years. I think there's a really good chance there's something down there. Like, <laughs> I, I don't want to put too much on but I think there's a really good chance there's something down there. There's a, a line that is sort of repeated throughout the book that comes early on that's like, what do you want? What will you pay for it? And mm-hmm. I think that that really, like, when I first read those words, I was like, okay, buckle up, really <laughs> in for something here. And it, that sort of, that theme resonates so well through this book because they don't know what they'll pay for it. Mm-hmm. And they don't know what that really means until it comes time to collect. Yeah. And that's such mm-hmm. a Oh, yeah, it's very Faustian in yeah. that sense, I think. Yeah. I love it. I know we can't talk about the ending because... <laughs> I, I can't 
give that away. There's, it's such a, the last third of the book moves so fast. I could not stop reading when I was going through it the, for the first time because I just needed to know how this could possibly play out. And so my, it's a little bit of a cruel question because I don't want to mm-hmm. give anything away, but I just have to know, did you know how it was going to end? Did you know the lead up to it the whole time? Yeah, yeah, I knew fairly early on how I, I didn't know that it would stop where it stopped, but I knew how it would act. like I knew that final scene, um, sort of where the book, like the the culmination of everything, I knew what it was going to be. And it felt sort of inevitable, even as I felt like, oof. <laughs> oh no, this is it's going in this direction. But yeah, no, I knew. And it, it just felt again, it felt inevitable to me, both in the supernatural aspects of the book, but also just in the, what I had built out and the the characters I had created in this world, specifically sort of the differences in upbringing and class and financial status. Like it all sort of seemed like it was pointing in the direction that it ultimately goes. Mm -hmm. And if that's not enough to get people to read, I don't know what (laughs) it is because that's, I mean, it's just so good. The next piece of that naturally is that two of the words that I could not stop thinking about when I was thinking about the characters of Madalena and Luisa were just the words visceral and feral because these two girls have so much in them. They make so many choices that you have to just be along for the ride because Mm -hmm. there's no other way to describe it. Is it freeing to get to write characters like this because I I was thinking uh, your first book as well mm-hmm. has these sort of interesting feral, yeah. <laughs> interesting feral female characters uh-huh. and so I just it just has to me it seems like it would be such a fun free oh, thing to get yeah, to write it's wonderful um and I think too it any sort of <laughs> I feel like often you know, to live in society, you like have a feeling or a thought and you're like, oh, that's not so nice. And you are like, okay, let it go. But it's nice in fiction to be able to be like, oh, there's that thought. What would happen if you actually go through with it? Or if you actually made these choices or like Madalena, especially is just very cruelly pragmatic. Like there's a part in the book and this is, this is early on. So I don't think I'm necessarily giving it away, but there's a part where she's like trying to help Louisa and she's like, "Hmm, I wonder like, could I just kill one of these other girls in exchange? Like, and then she would be okay. Like, she's just very, like, that's like how she thinks. Like she's very, she's very selfish. And it was a lot of fun to write her that way. And it also was freeing because I don't think women often have the opportunity to be selfish like that or are portrayed like that. Um, And so I think it, I think like sort of the the unlikable female character, like my goal is to like write the unlikable female character that you will like. Um, and I like them both. Uh, like I, I do, but I also like they're making choices that, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to know these people in the real world, but in fiction, it works beautifully because like, where else do you let it all out? You know? <laughs> I, I mean, I think they're both likable. I definitely found myself, you want to root for them. You want nothing mm-hmm. but good, you know, you want them to figure it out. But, you know, at a certain point you have to be like, uh oh, uh oh. I know yeah. that if they were alive right now, they'd both be watching Yellow Jackets. Oh, for, for sure. sure. For sure. I know there's something so like, it is, it's that teenage girls all on top of each other in like high pressure situations <laughs> that is just wonderful there's just something so fascinating to me like I feel like I could write books about teenage girls forever because there's so much there like there's such a depth of emotion and 
it's often like the first time you're feeling these things. And so you don't have any context for the decisions you're making or for even just like the actual size of your feelings. Like I remember as a teenager thinking like everything was the end of the world. Like what was wonderful was so wonderful. And what was sad was so sad. And I really like have not experienced, I think like parenthood maybe is the only other time I've experienced those feelings, like very new parenthood. So that like hormonal rush and the combination of, you know, each of them having their own agenda and sort of having to play against each other. Um, I just think, yeah, they'd absolutely be watching Yellow Jackets. Anyone who's ever been a teen girl, I think will like relate so much (laughs) to this. And anyone who's ever known a teen girl and been like, what is happening inside Mm -hmm. their brains? This is, I mean, this is like to the extreme, but all those big themes are absolutely there. I keep looking over here because I have my copy. I just, I love this jacket so (laughs) much. It's so gorgeous. They did such a wonderful job. It's so pretty. Gonna look so, I mean, and it just has that like perfect, creepy, dark, scary feel. But I'm also like, I would be lured in by that. I would go talk to the entity in the water. I would drop some stuff in there. Why not? What's the worst Mm -hmm. thing that could happen? Turns out it, a lot of bad things could happen. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on to some, one of my favorite questions is the thing I always have to ask is, who are the literary influences that make Julia Fine, Julia Fine? Oh um, okay, definitely Angela Carter, who I think just has had a huge influence. For this particular book, like Hilary Mantel and Wolf Hall was a big inspiration, just in terms of being able to write historical fiction that is super voicey. Like I think that what she does with those books where it feels like She's not just telling you about what happened, like she's creating art about it um, in a way that I have read a lot of historical fiction that is much more about trying to teach you about the place, you know? So she's Helen Oyeyemi is a big influence. Trying to think now back to like childhood, like the Brothers Grimm of all fairy tales uh, in general. Yeah, I think that's mostly a mix. Yeah, I mean, I can... I can see all of that. I mean, this is the, the grim, the grim piece of Brothers Grimm is certainly present. In- <laughs> always, in- always in everything that I'm working on. Um, but yeah, I also feel like for each, each book, it's been like a different series. After this one too, Jeanette Winterson has um, a novel called The Passion that's set in like Napoleonic Venice. So it's like 80 years later. Um, that was a big influence. That's great. I mean, I love any historical fiction been on such a historical fiction kick recently that I can't stop and and I just feel mm-hmm. like I'm dropping all these um little hints like or facts about any sort of obscure time period and my friends are like why do you why I'm like look I've been reading books okay I can't this is just I this love is where it I'm at too. right now but I also think historical fiction it you can talk about as a writer you can talk about so many contemporary things through historical fiction and that's Absolutely. something that I I mean, shame on me. It took me a while to realize, I think, that like, oh, yeah, like this is happening in 1700, but like it's actually also happening now. So that I think is something really interesting to be able to sort of come at some of these issues of like female agency and bodily autonomy from these different angles. Um, Because, you know, we're all talking about ultimately the same thing. I think historical fiction lets you add it sort of slant in a really cool way. Yeah, I think it it helps 
so many people come to things in a different way. I think there's a lot of people who are really hesitant about getting into any sort of fiction that they deem political Mm-hmm. That they're coming like mm-hmm. contemporary. It's all political. political. It's all political. It's all <laughs> all art is political. But yeah. if, you, if people feel better about mm-hmm. reading it in the past, then then there, there we go. go. But there you go. Yeah. There's so much to to sort of mm-hmm. look it through is, these lenses. There is too, like the world building aspect of it, like mm-hmm. you said too. I really love with historical fiction, like just it's like watching. I don't know, like you you watch a really good period TV show, and there's always something that takes you out of it, which is maybe just me watching TV in general. Like I have trouble just like fully immersing myself in it. But if I'm reading a book, it's like, no, I'm there now, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think it's like, especially if you're watching TV, you're like, I know that these are contemporary people. Yeah. I know who those people mm, good are. Point. I yeah. saw them on yeah. Instagram this morning. <laughs> but when you're reading a book, I mean, you create, you supply so much of it yourself mm-hmm. that it allows you to really just stop and immerse and imagine so much more richly what these times were like. Absolutely. Yeah. And to have people out there doing the research so that instead of reading, you know, a textbook, you're reading yeah. a novel and getting all the information. Yes. <laughs> I'd much rather, I want all my learning to come through fiction, please. Yes, I think please. I could, yeah. That'll be so much better for my brain. <laughs> to wrap sort of things up here, I have to know what's next. Do you have anything on the slate coming up? Gosh, so I know that I, that's a terrible question, but. <laughs> I am working on the next book and just got to a point where I feel like maybe I need to pivot and start over, not in like, just start over from like how I'm approaching it, which this has been sort of a bear, but I've been doing a lot of reading and I'm interested in um, American spiritualism in like the late 1800s, like the early, late, like 1860s and 70s, post like immediately post-Civil War. Um, and I'm trying to write a sort of like Edith Wharton meets Shirley Jackson type yeah. ghost story about that. But we'll we'll see. It's it's this particular book, Madalena. I feel like I did all the research and did a year of reading and was like so ready, and it just came out. And this one has not been so easy. So we'll see if it emerges and could be like 15 years. We'll see what happens. <laughs> I mean, I hope not, but I'll wait if 15 years. Yeah, that's what it takes. something else in the middle, hopefully. <laughs> but yeah, no, we'll, we'll see if this is like the next one. Um, but I've definitely been like circling it. So amazing. And that's something for people to look forward to, because I know that they're going to be also wondering what's next after the, all of so. our readers get Madalena in the dark. I hope so. I do feel like my first book is like probably belongs right. They belong right next to each other in terms Absolutely. of like, if you want more, go back to this one. <laughs> Absolutely. So. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you I for having me. I love this conversation. For everyone needs to pick up Madeleine in the Dark. It's out now. And of course, also, what should be wild if when you've done your reading on Madalena. <laughs> you want more angry more. teens. You want yeah. more angry feral girls. <laughs> Thank you so much. This has really been great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.